The following podcast contains mature language and adult discussion. This week on Kayfabe, stories you're not supposed to hear. Did PWI discard fan ballots and just no, give the awards not. to whoever the fuck we you did want? Not, uh, we did not throw them out. We did not discard them. Yeah, more kayfabe. More kayfabe. Bring your darkest secrets. Your darkest, most buried secrets to a place called kayfabe. Sean Oliver's kayfabe, by the way. Because there seem to be so many others out there. Can't trademark the word, I guess. But um, here we are. I said bring your secrets, right? So that's the whole gimmick here, right? Uh, it's um, it's uh, it's stories that you're not supposed to hear. Those are called secrets, right? You know, the deepest, most penetrating look into someone's soul today is absolutely, absolutely positively a look through their iPhone. Uh, incredible, or or your Android, whatever it is, your phone, your smartphone. That's it. That's the deepest, most penetrating look into someone's soul. The deepest, darkest secrets are in your phone. You know that. God, just the music alone. I got someone's got to do a study about this. What's the music you would hide? Forget about the texts. Forget about all your dirty pictures. What's the music you would hide? I did an edition of Breaking Kayfabe with Kevin Nash, and I asked him, um, biggest um, guilty pleasure. And he said, uh, careless whisper. And um, what was the other one? Uh, (laughs) Spandau Ballet. True, <laughs> so true. Funny how it seems. Those 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 would be great characteristics, great uh, um, examples of of guilty pleasures. Music, God, so much in music. Our secrets. What's on your? What is on your iPhone? Your your smartphone? Musically, that you would shove in, in a in a digital pocket somewhere if, if somebody came up behind you. You know there's shit people don't want you you don't want people to catch you listening to. My God. Let me go through my phone right here. Benny Mardonis. I, it, it's the first one that comes to mind. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I love there's nothing like into the night played at maximum in your car. Oh God. Unbelievable, right? It's unbelievable. It's this has to be like the 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 top of the list for for guilt for guilty pleasures on the phone, right? Musical guilty pleasures. God, can I just come out and say it's a great song? Are, you, are we allowed to do that? Can I say it's a great song? I think I'm going to have to say it's a good song. I'm going to have to say I don't care whether you think this is a guilty pleasure or not. This is the shit. This is just the shit, bro. God, I can go right through this fucking thing. I could go... There's so much. You know what? All right, listen. Talked about being a KISS fan. I've done episodes of this show where we've talked about... The, the wrestling fans divided psyche between wrestling, kiss, and horror movies. We know this to be true. And um, but God, so much of Kiss. Look, we loved it. We loved the allure of it as kids, right? But as an adult, can you really, when the song comes on, sing the lyric? I'm a dancer, a romancer, she's a Capricorn, and I'm a Cancer. That's like a felony. I think uh, David Lee Roth used to call them uh, musical felonies. That would be one of them. 
But there's there's a lot in the Kiss canon that's that you might say is is a guilty pleasure. I don't know where everybody stands on the Elder music from the Elder. That's for hardcore Kiss fans, though. This is this is a, listen. This is a podcast for more the 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 general populace. I know we have a slant towards wrestling here. Hopefully, I can get rid of that soon. But um, no. But as it stands now, we can't go too deep into the Kiss canon. But people are very divided on the music for the uh, from the Elder. Music from the Elder was a soundtrack for a production that never existed. It was very a very vague story joined together with this orchestral rock music, rock opera, I guess. And, um, you know, Lou Reed contributed to it. A lot of people that um, that you know of from other uh, other areas of music. But, but it was never produced. And it became one of those things like, you know, kiss the spit in the blood and all that stuff. And then here's this soundtrack for a music, for a... Uh, I guess a rock opera that never existed. Kiss fans are very passionate. All right, I got into a phase, too, where I started pulling old disco. Now, I'm not talking about Glenn Gilberti. Talk about old disco. No, but I'm talking about uh, old school, kind of like, we're talking Studio 54 jams. Oh, my God. I'm going to have to hand in my man card immediately after this episode. Who's the manliest man? And I'm going to have to call like Dutch Mantel and they're going to have to do a ceremony where there's bloodletting, you know, and he just like pulls my pants down and castrates me in front of God and everybody. It's just, uh, it's just going to have to happen. Uh, let's see. What else would be, uh, okay. So while, while we're on the disco, the disco thing, we're going to have, and, and I'm not saying that, 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 that I don't love, Tapping my hands on the wheel to this song. Goddamn, there's a little Jim Cornette for you. I'm not going to say that I don't enjoy this. All right? I'm just saying musical guilty pleasures. I know what they are. I know what they are. Uh, Okay. While we're on this, listen, you can't beat Lime... If you want some of that action, this I, look, I don't know what it is. It, 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 it takes me back to high school, I guess, a little bit. You know, growing up in a city, I was very much the minority. It was all Latino. So, you know, El Gringo over here, you know. So. You know, at the time, there was nothing, nothing to be ashamed of for having a little lime babe we're going to love tonight blasting out of your uh, your uh, Monte Carlo or your Mustang. What was the other lime song? I have it on here somewhere, too. Oh, Angel Eyes. Yeah, this one, too. Yeah, this uh, this qualifies. Thank God. I hear people all over the place just it's clicking over to Joe Rogan or, you know, uh, uh, Eric Bischoff, whoever the other fucking podcasts are out there. Um, you know, I hear this disco music, right? So I, I, some people think Studio 54, you know, I grew up here right in the shadow of New York City. So, um, you know, that that looms large. But you know what? The club... The uh, I got to get this guy on the show. There was a book called um, Hotel Scarface about the Hotel Mutiny in Coconut Grove, Miami, which was a hub, a hub of all the biggest cocaine traffickers in, in the 80s. And uh, it's a fascinating look. The book is tremendous. It's a it's a fascinating look. Uh, Robin Farzad is the name of the author. And I'm going to get him on here. That's it. I'm going to play that shit in the background the entire time. Lime. All that shit is going is going to uh, just to recreate the atmosphere. There was a t- I mean, these guys would order champagne to fill the hot tubs with. It was fascinating. It's it's if you watched the movie Scarface, the uh, the Babylon Club is loosely based on, or maybe not so loosely based on the uh, the club mutiny, mutiny club at the Hotel Mutiny. 
So I got I got really obsessed with this. I, I read the book, and um, this past summer I got really obsessed with it. I spent a lot of time in Florida this past summer. And um, when I was down in Miami, I, I made it a point. I was going to seek out the Hotel Mutiny. It's still there. It, it's since been been bought and given a whole facelift. And, you know, it's only the ghosts, folks, that are there um, of that era. But uh, listen, I believe in ghosts, and uh, I wanted to feel some of it. Now, I, my wife is, is, you know, she's big into the, like, oh, I, I, if you want to walk in, that's fine. But, like, I can't stay here. I would feel that energy of the, the shootings and the, and the coke wars and all that shit. And I, I, I don't want to be around that. And I'm fascinated by this. We ate, we, we ate dinner at Gianni Versace's mansion that same week. You can do that, you know, you can go down there and eat out in the courtyard, the very courtyard, his mansion, uh, uh, upon which, uh, the steps upon which he was, uh, he was killed. So, uh, why am I on this? I guess because the disco brought me here. Listen, guys, don't be ashamed of what's on your iPad, on your, uh, on your iPhone. Don't be ashamed of it. It's you. You are the sum total. Woody Allen's movie. Crimes and misdemeanors. We are the sum total of the decisions we make. No, we are the sum totals of the shit on our iPhones. The KC Vault. Want to see all of Kayfabe Commentary's content? It's all going to be up there. There's in the hundreds of hours of programming already on the KC Vault. $14.95 $14.95 a month. One price to watch all of our content. These shows were 20 bucks a piece. Just a few years ago on DVD. A la carte. Now, you've got like, I think there's like 90 full-length programs of K-Fame commentaries on there. For one low price a month. Watch them as many times as you want. And you should. People tell me they watch some of our timelines three and four times. Watch their favorite years again and again. KC Vault. Go to kcvault.pivotshare.com. kcvault.pivotshare.com. Sign up. Join the revolution. We changed it all. Kayfabe Commandos stormed the Bastille and uh, and changed things. kcvault.pivotshare.com. Kayfabe, I mean, you know, that word used to be such a secretive word. Now we can actually get out there and say it on your fabulous podcast. I know. It's, and it's kind of become tattooed on to me. So I, I named the first book Kayfabe. And I it, loved it. I it, loved it. It's always my hope that, like, somebody beyond wrestling will happen upon <laughs> happen upon something and go, you know what? It's not the the, the the goofy fake sport it was. There's there's so much mystique associated well, with it. Well you know it. where the word came from, don't you? Well, I've heard different versions. I will take your version. Is go ahead. My version is I it's not a lady named uh, K Fabian, right? Yeah. Uh right. Uh Fabian had nothing to do with it. He was a great rock and roll star. He had nothing to do with it. But I was told that from the old school wrestlers that I used to travel with, that it was a carnival term, that it came from the carnivals, and that's where it was contrived. But and it was allegedly from a woman uh, who was a hanger on at the carnivals. Her name was Kay Babe. This is what I heard. Can I point to this and say this is in actuality what this came from? No, I can't. Right, but I wanted to put that out there. Well, I'll go with it. It's as good as anything else. Um, <laughs> um, let's. I want to go to the magazines for a minute here, Bill. I know you've talked about them ad nauseum, but there's there there's so much I want to know. See, I was when I was a kid, I got the local. Pro, my local product was Vince Senior's product. Okay, in the seventies, Channel Nine at midnight and in the morning. So. Me too. Me no. too. Actually, mine was Channel 5 back in the day when Vince Sr. promoted on the Dumont Network. Uh, okay, I, right. That's where I first started watching. 
But um, so now to but to get any th- access to any other wrestling, I mean, I knew it existed, but but bef- but before cable, I had to buy the magazines, and and we were given. Um, snapshots of what's happening in Florida, Mid-South, whatever. So a younger fan may not realize how much power anybody who was editing one of those magazines had because you were the sole, I'm saying you, representing all the magazine publishing company. Yeah. 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 You were the sole conduit to every other, all the other 20 promotions in my life went wow. through just a handful of people. You realize that, right? Yeah. Well, we were the internet before the internet. We were the we were the way that uh, people found out what was going on in all the territories and that the world of pro wrestling was more than just wherever you were watching it from. Fans in Georgia uh, wanted to see what it looked like to uh, – what, what did it look like in Madison Square Garden? We had photos every month from the garden. Fans at the garden wanted to know what it looked like in uh, at the Omni in Georgia. Fans in Florida wanted to know what it looked like in Bill Watts' territory. So yeah, we we covered all the uh, all the territories, but that was the way that the wrestlers became publicized, and fans knew who they were. And there were wrestlers like I never forgot um, Broadway Paul Jones when he was wrestling in Florida. And he went appeared at the garden in the early 70s when I had started my career. And I went in the uh, employee's entrance with him. And there were fans outside who knew who he was because of the wrestling magazine. Exactly. I mean, you were doing such you were doing a service not just to the fans, but but to the workers, because uh, just for that reason, a little bit of coverage in the wrestler or inside wrestling or PWI. And they were now introduced to every other every other territory so they had a little not only that this is something very few people bring up but a lot of the promoters would look at the photos and then that inkling to hey this guy looks good maybe i can call um this other territory and find out if i can get this guy for a couple of shots so we were we were kind of like uh um agents without even realizing it so and so you must have been beloved by all of the promoters before like mcmahon threw you out in 84 or whatever but no no they uh, most of them yes but there were promoters i remember one time i was in um amarillo texas uh with terry funk and traveling with him and he was going to a a small town to wrestle ivan putsky and uh I'm in the dressing room and a lady promoter came in and she said, uh, you're not taking pictures at my show. You're making money off what we do. Um, I don't want anyone to know about this. Um, we don't need you here. I draw. For, well, you, you're giving. Uh, uh, I, I can I can visualize you going like what? But she had her own little territory there. And Terry Funk. And Ivan Pusky both told them that unless I'm permitted to shoot pictures so they can get their publicity, they're not wrestling that night. And sure enough, I was allowed to shoot. But there were promotions that wouldn't let us in the dressing rooms. Wow. Uh, there were promotions that wouldn't let us uh, um, cover the matches. Because remember, a lot of the times they ran the same matches in the same in uh, different towns and they didn't want the results. So when I came along, I told these promoters that we're not printing results, per se. We're doing stories on the wrestlers. And that changed a lot of the mindset of a lot of the promoters who were hesitant to, uh, uh, to let me in. Didn't want, the, didn't want the finishes because they were going to do repeat finishes and, they would, and fans would see that, that they were using the same finish? What, why were they afraid yes, of the results? Absolutely. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Well, that's why. That's why, because they would do a certain thing in a certain town and saying that this is the first time this right. this is the first time Terry Funk and Ivan Putsky ever wrestled, and yet they had wrestled forty times in other territories or in other uh, um, other cities in that same territory. I was such a mark for the magazines that um, I was ve- I I 
very, what age am I talking here? I'm saying maybe 12. I had figured out the identities of each of the brands of the magazines, what I was going to expect from each. So I just want to go down the list okay. and, and I want your take to see if it lines up with, with what my impression was now. That's great. Okay. Uh, the main event, you remember that magazine? I do. Roberta I knew I was Morgan getting, was the editor. Uh, who was it? Roberta Morgan. That was not one of the magazines that I worked no, for. No, it was not, was but not I was getting I, right. more blood in that one than I was going to get in any other magazine. True. Well, they, I, I don't remember the blood. I remember the main event might have been the first magazine to have slick paper it was, after yes. the demise of after the demise of the original wrestling review that Stanley Weston put out. He had slick color pages, but that's what I remember. And uh, this lovely girl who was about five foot four, and her name was Roberta Morgan, and she also wrote a book called The Main Event. But yeah, she was the editor of that magazine. Was she the only female editor? Of of the magazines, uh, there were there was another girl named Virginia Bose, but I don't remember what magazine she was the uh, the editor of. Were they beasts or were they attractive? Oh, Roberta was gorgeous. Really? Yes, yes. If you look her up online, uh, pictures of Roberta Morgan with wrestlers, uh, they adored her. She was she was uh, she was absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Um. So then we had. Uh, the Wrestler and Inside Wrestling. They were always so paired. Really I had the subscription and they would always come together. What Were they jointly owned? What was the relationship? Yeah, well, that, they were part of Stanley Weston's uh, magazines. And those were two of the magazines. When I first started uh, my career in 1970, those were the two main uh, wrestling magazines for the company, Inside Wrestling and The Wrestler. And Inside Wrestling was more of like a tabloid, so to say, that more sensational stories than the stories in The Wrestler, the way I saw it. And Inside Wrestling actually became, I, I don't know if you know this, well, you read my book, but I had the very first pro wrestling radio show in New York. I used to buy my own time. And the name of the, um, the radio show was based upon one of the magazines that I worked for. It was called Inside Wrestling, the magazine for wrestling fans. I'm your host, Bill After, and now here's what's happening, baby. That was the name of my column. What? Um, so, okay, so uh, Inside Wrestling, uh, The Wrestler. What? Um, which was the one that did the two the two TVs, the, the talking? That was Inside Wrestling. That was one-on-one. -on -one. One-on-one, yeah. -on -one, right. And the concept yes. was they would cut out a picture of a wrestler and, and kind of paste it over this. Um, I don't know where you found these prototypes. No, that was real. They were uh, picture phones. We had <laughs> I don't believe in kayfabe. I'm sorry. But, no, he, but here's the thing. I, I don't – I'm not sure that I ever believed that these two people were talking to each other. Well, most people did. Most people didn't. Sometimes the wrestlers would say to me when I bring those in the dressing room, like uh, uh, Chief J. Strongbow or whatever, boy, you guys wrote that really well. I thought I really said that. So, okay. So now, did you have complete license? Like, did you have to contact Jay Strongbow and say, listen, you're going to be in a one-on-one? -on -one. No. No. You just no, did we it? Stayed, no. We stayed. Well, it wasn't me, per se. I worked for the company. There were a lot of us. How many? Office. How many? A lot of editors. Well, hold on. We'll, we will we will get to that. See, the fallacy is that Bill Apter did everything. I did not. I did not. I did not write everything. I was not all the editors. Um, but I want to stay on one-on-one -on -one for a moment. Yeah. Okay? So we didn't have license where we call uh, Vince McMahon Sr. or the wrestlers and all that. We stayed within the limits of a storyline. Like if Jimmy Valiant and Chief J. Strongbow had a big feud, we pretty much knew what to say. We pretty much got into the head of the characters. And we never went outside of what the characters were. We never strayed from that. So in the office, depending upon the various uh, eras, I was on the road quite a bit. I wrote my columns. Um, I wrote some stories. I was also, the, I was mainly, uh, you saw me around the ring all through the years shooting pictures. So I was the photo editor forever of those things, meaning that I would shoot the photos unless I was in a, uh, not able to get to a territory and we'd hire a freelancer. 
Uh, I would come back to the office with 30 rolls of film. I would develop the film in the dark room. You people can Google what dark room and film was. <laughs> um, and then I would print up the best shots and they would, we would make what was called a contact sheet or a proof sheet. And we'd have a meeting every Friday of the editorial staff, Bill, what pictures do you have? And I would tell them what pictures I had from, uh, um, from what I shot and what we had from the freelancers. And then we would create storylines and angles to go along with the pictures. Now your publication date is what? Like three months ahead. Hold on. Hold on one sec. I just want to add one more thing to that. I know we're covering a lot of territory, but I I want to make sure. No pun intended. There were, there there were, uh, there were some wrestlers like Bruno San Martino who respected, who hoped we had respected him enough not to make up quotes on him in character. He was one of the few people who would spend hours with me on the phone doing real quotes and real interviews. How, how many like were Hulk there? Hogan, who else? People, well, not a lot, but people like Hulk Hogan used to say to me when I was close with him, when he was uh, all those years in the WWF, um, he would uh, say, you know, hey, man, you know, you guys do it better than me. Just, you know, stay in, stay in character, man. But and a lot of the it. magazines weren't kind to Hogan. Well, uh, we did controversial stories because that's what sold, you know, Hulk Hogan, a great wrestler. That's or Hulk Hogan, a great sports entertainer, uh, Hulk Hogan, the leg drop man. Those things don't sell. The publisher was in this business, not to be in the wrestling business, but to sell wrestling and boxing magazines. So we kept going from what Stanley Weston was doing. And we, um, we followed his lead of almost like becoming the National Enquirer for wrestling magazines until until one of us, and I don't know who it was, whether it was me, Peter King, Stu Sachs, or I don't think Craig Peters was there at that point. I'm not really sure. Uh, came up with an idea to do Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and that became like the, uh, the Sports Illustrated of, uh, of Pro Wrestling Mm-hmm. magazines it was done more like a uh, like a sports magazine than a uh, than a tabloid so in the back of i think it might have been inside wrestling there were you had all the territories listed across two pages with a one through ten ranking right it was oh, like yeah the I, I did the rankings yes yeah, yeah that it was in the centerfold how? Like, what did, what did you base the rankings on? Like, what the hot feud was at the time? Or would you call Bill I Watts called and say... Every, every Monday, every Monday I called every wrestling office just to find out what was going on in the territories. Um, I would talk to people like Jim Ross. I would talk to uh, Howard Finkel in the WWF office. Um, I would talk to Jim Crockett. Um, I would talk to Eddie Graham. And I would tell them when I knew what their feuds were, I'd say, well, we're doing the top 10 list. Does this list make sense? And I'd say to Eddie Graham, you know, we've got uh, Jack Briscoe as the world champion. We've got Paul Jones as the Florida champion. And then I go down the list of who we felt should be that top 10. And if they suggested something else, that would be fine. Now you were going about the magazines coming out yeah. months later. So that brings me to the rankings now. So there, a lot, a lot of times, fans did not understand until we put the the date of the ratings on the top ratings as of. Fans before that did not understand that. Well, uh, Bruno lost the belt, so why is he still champion in the magazine? It's because there was that three min, three month lag time getting it from our office through production to printing to distribution right it was it about three months uh, i would say two to three months yeah yeah, yeah. um and then we get wrestlers very angry uh, the, the rankings got me in trouble a lot of times wrestlers would call me and say you know i'm better than uh uh than ivan putsky or i'm better than tony Gurria. how could you put me number five below these guys they took it very seriously because again this was a fan based magazine 
And the fans took the rankings seriously. A lot of fans went to the rankings as the first thing uh, when they got the magazines. And the wrestlers took it seriously, too. As a New York fan, I was always offended that it never said world champion next to the WWF champion. Why was that? Because they never called him a world champion. They always called him the WWWF champion. They never said the WWWF world champion. That, that wasn't part of some kind of slight to Vince Senior. There's there's not something not more salacious there. No. Not at all. We recognize no. We recognize the National Wrestling Alliance World Heavyweight Champion. Right. Yes, and AWA also the had world. Right. Had the World Heavyweight Champion. The WWF had the WWWF Champion. Were we angry when all the magazines, not just our company, but all of them, were thrown out when? The WWF started their own magazine. Sure. And at that point, we had uh, started calling it a world championship a little before that. But we looked at the picture and we said, you know what? The WWF champion does not defend that title really around the world like Nick Bockwinkle or um, Harley Race did. So we stripped them of world title status at that point. ECW used to beg us. <laughs> world title status <laughs> i bet he did Paulie. they used to beg us they used to beg us for that um but we couldn't do it because we were trying to be like a real sports magazine what what were the rules about blood like could, could you uh, did, did you have to pull back the reins at one point I, I seem to remember a lot more blood on the covers in like the 70s than yes. in the 80s yes. the distributors of the magazine were afraid of the bloody covers. That's why they pretty much stopped. And when I first started, I met Stanley West, and he said, this business, putting people on the cover, that's what he spoke like, is all about blood and sex. Yeah, that's what he said. Isn't, isn't everything? Part, uh, um, I don't know if this podcast is. If it did, I'm not cutting my forehead. No, well, I, am, um, I am sitting without shorts on. Um, um, too much information. Apartment All wrestling right. while we're on that, while we're on the sex. Oh, was that stuff like shot by someone else and sent in and Stanley would just put it in or what well, the again, fuck? Well, again, there's that? a whole chapter. There's a whole chapter yes. in my book. This wrestling called, fixed. called. This wrestling fixed. Very What's good. the answer? I didn't, didn't know it was, it was broken. broken. Right. So, and there's also the audio version. They're still selling well. And um, so, Stanley Weston got a, a package in the mail one time from Theo Errett, who used to shoot wrestling matches at the Olympic Auditorium for us. And it was two models in bikinis posing like they were wrestling. And he called me into the office and he said, we're going to put this in Sports Review Wrestling Magazine and let's see how it does. I left his office to go into the editorial pool and I was like, there's no way. There's no way we're going to publish this. So we published it. We had Dan Shockett, who was a real person, a real writer who died at a very young age from cancer. Uh, Dan became the uh, face behind apartment wrestling as a, as a promoter named Dave Moll, M-O-L-L, and uh, who was the promoter of apartment wrestling. So that magazine went viral where it was a small picture on the cover. And it sold more copies of Sports Review Wrestling than any other issue. Mm. And why? Because kids were saying, Mommy, I'm buying a wrestling magazine. And it was, it was a softcore porn to a lot of people. So um, you can imagine now when I go to the matches, I always bring magazines with me. And I know I brought his name up a lot, but Chief J. Strongbow sees that magazine. And he says, do not put me in the magazine with this slut stuff, with this porn. I have a family. And that resonated in almost every territory. So I would go back to the office and tell Mr. Weston, and he says, that's too bad. We're going to keep putting in because we're making a lot of money. And it goes into your paycheck. Which, by the way, brings up another, you know, I, got, I was paid every week by the publishing company. People call me all the time and ask if they can buy pictures. I don't own any of the photos I show. Right, They're right. all owned by the publishing companies that I worked for. Capo. Okay? So, uh, so back to apartment wrestling. 
So it became a situation where uh, then Stanley started to put out a Battling Girls special that sold really well. After several years, I think it became tired, and the wrestling promoters were still bitching at me. And I don't think it was worth the fight anymore. And Theo put out a, uh, a hard, I think it was a hardcover book of beautiful battling ladies or whatever. And you can probably find that online somewhere. But that hurt my stance with a lot of the guys. I was very happy when that went away. Yeah. It lasted a while. I mean, I, I certainly it remember did. it through it my... Uh... Sonaro, who was the champion, was a... Uh, was a uh, a porn star. Uh, what was her real name? Sika. She was a porn yeah, star. Sika, sure. For, uh, yeah, yeah. I can't believe we're sitting here discussing uh, apartment wrestling and you're in your shorts. It's part. Okay. It's part of the lurid uh. history of. Uh, um, all right, I have some Twitter questions coming across from you, so let me jump in here. Um, oh, from the Twitter phone. From the Twitterverse. I call them the Twitter phone. Jacob Walton would like me to ask you about the state of wrestling magazines and how they continue to stay afloat. They don't really, because uh, uh, WWE conceded a few years ago and stopped publishing their magazine. Um, Fighting Spirit magazine out of England just did their last issue. They're teaming up with another, uh, I think, uh, uh, another magazine to try and get uh, the talk sport to try and get that going uh, the japanese magazines that were there were dozens and dozens of them they're all gone except i think one or two uh there all the magazines from mexico i think are gone and in the united states here pro wrestling illustrated is a uh, bi-monthly and they're the only they're the last man standing at this point i wanted so there to do is, a uh what did i want to do with pwi i can't remember i, I went through it's it's stew still right Stu Sachs is still the editor. Yeah, yes. Kappa is the company. I went through them to Kappa try Publishing. and do um, something with Kayfabe Commentaries. It was a series in some way related to the old covers. And yeah. we wanted to do a, a, a reproduction of a cover, but an actual one. Like, not, yeah. not to recreate, yeah. but to get the plate yeah. or whatever it was called and make that the box cover. So a fan, like sure. a younger fan now, would be able to hold that there was such a pain in the ass to deal with. I, I abandoned ship. I think it was an no insurance comment. thing was the problem. But No comment. He had, unfortunately, there's a lot of copyright rules and things that Christ you need sake. to. It's a, uh, no, no, there, there, there really is because the, uh, the publishing company has to uh, clear everything through the photographers. I mean, it's just... Yeah, it was a pain uh, in the ass. Just, this wasn't yeah. like the Beatles catalog I was licensing. It was a fucking cover of Ric Flair, <laughs> for God's sakes. Salvatore Martone wants me to read this. This is the, a very long question, oh, but... Wait, wait. I just want to say something regarding the wrestling magazines. Yeah. I was in Walmart three weeks ago, and there was a girl, probably 17, 18 years old, stocking the magazines, and they had the new issue of PWI. And I looked at her and I said, I used to collect those magazines. And she looked at me and she said, why would anyone collect magazines? Wow. Yeah. So that 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 fan base of magazines, other than the weekly magazines, and maybe Sports Illustrated, everything's online now. Uh, people are saying, I hope AEW comes out with a magazine. To me, that would be could be a financial disaster. Do a program for the show's. But a newsstand magazine in these days, I don't think so. No, it's not a contemporary item. It's it. I love when I go to a convention and someone's got a giant box of them and I can go through and I literally oh, remember oh, the covers to, I come had. Come to Legends of the Ring. Come to Legends of the Ring. Bud Carson's bringing hundreds and hundreds of magazines to yeah. sell. Yeah. I mean, I love it. But I mean, I'm. I, it's again, it's an antiquated. I stand there and I feel like, you know, I should be wearing Depends and talking about if I'm regular and I'm shitting wicker. Yeah, um, really? But, but, but you, you can go on your phone now and read the magazine. Yeah. Salvatore <laughs> says, Salvatore says, I'm not going to make a habit. Okay. Here, here's his question. My question for Mr. Apter is regarding what I want to call the 1995 PWI Feud of the Year 
screw job, where Tommy Dreamer and Raven were screwed over big time. First, I need to proclaim my suspicion that there is no real fan voting for the year-end awards. The editors and writers just pick the winners and assign a fictitious vote count. Sure, PWI did have actual physical ballots in their magazines asking readers to vote. However, another part of my theory is that PWI obviously would just throw them out. With all that preface... I feel that PWI awarded the Rotten versus Rotten as the 1995 feud of the year because it was a more photogenic feud that could have that could move more magazines, kind of akin to how those blood-covered wrestling review covers used to move many issues back in the day. Seriously, Bill, how can you explain such an iconic feud like Dreamer versus Raven not even being the top runner-up in that year or even any year thereafter? The fix was well, in. I, 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 this was pro wrestling's version of Jethro Tull <laughs> Beating Metallica for best metal recording in 1989. P.S. Harry Simon wasn't a real person. Harry Simon was a real person. And let me also tell you, Dan Shockett was a real person. And Eddie Elner, by the way, who became our heel editor, um, has a runs a yoga studio in Los Angeles called Yoga Soup. You can find him online. He was very, very, very real. So let's get back to this now, okay? That feud, um, I left the company trying to think what year to start WOW Magazine, to help start, kick off WOW Magazine. I don't think I was there. Um, Hold on. I have to look up what year I left PWI. I really do. Well, while you do that, can we, while you do that, can we, can we address the balloting? Uh, We can. Uh, Hold on. Did you discard? Did PWI discard fan ballots and just give the awards to whoever the fuck you wanted? Uh, We did not throw them out. We did not discard them. We had an idea of who was going to win most of the uh, awards by the early letters that came in. Uh, Were the numbers inflated? Sure, the numbers were inflated. Um, But for the most part, through the deadlines that we had with the magazines, uh, Dusty Rhodes being the most popular wrestler of the year, um, things like that, the fan votes did um, uh, did confirm that the fan votes that we did get in the mail, and we did have somebody looking at those, by the way. Um, so no, they were not all thrown out. Absolutely not. Um, let's go back to. Uh, 1995. Okay, hold on a minute. Hold on. Hold on. Again, I'm t- I'm terrible with uh, with dates, but what are you trying on. to find out? What, uh, when the first issue of Wow was? No, 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 oh. no. When I left PWI, because I don't think I was there at that point. Um, after work for PWI till 1999, so I was there, and my answer is I don't remember. Okay, that's valid. That's the honest answer. See, um, honest answer. PB and would by like, the way, mm-hmm. I did. Uh, by the way, the other fallacy that I want to clear up is I did not write the PWI 500. Another ratings thing that got me in huge trouble with wrestlers bitching and moaning that I can't believe that I wasn't in the top 25, etc. We would sit in a conference room, we'd rank the the top hundred guys all together, all the editors. And then whoever was going to do the rest of it and write all the bios, like Bob Smith, you couldn't talk to that person. A sweet, lovable teddy bear like Bob Smith became a heel, aggravated person when he had to write the the entire PWI 500. You see what that looks like? Oh, he had yeah. a, he wrote every one of the mini bios, etc. It was terrible. Um, but no, getting back to the rankings though, not back to the rankings, but the uh, of the year-end awards, yeah. Uh, people, one of the things that I hated was people said that Aptor is in Jimmy Crockett's pocket because they're on Crockett's TV. Aptor's got a segment on Crockett's TV. I was never paid a penny for any of that. When the WWE um, tossed all the magazines out, um, which is we, um, oops, we uh, we spoke about that before. Ooh, hold on a minute. I think I just pressed a. Uh... Can you still see me? Yeah, Sean? you're you're fine. Okay. You're good. I just pressed the wrong button here. Um, hold on. I know you can edit this part. 
Yes. So for some reason, you're still there. I'm here. For some reason, some reason they share screen thing. So uh, anyway, so when WWE tossed us all out, we were already shooting uh, um, segments, uh, segments shooting matches on the Crockett shows and stuff. And I approached Jim Crockett Promotions because we had done this on Georgia Championship Wrestling even uh, way back in the day when uh, Ole Anderson said yes. Ole was great to me and to Craig Peters. I asked Ole Anderson back in the Georgia Championship Wrestling days, could we do a PWI segment on Georgia Championship Wrestling? He said, sure. Why not? Well, the same thing happened with Jim Crockett Promotions. Once we were tossed out of WWF, I thought, wouldn't it be great? If we were on the competitions TV doing a PWI segment or a magazine segment, Crockett said yes right away. So that's so right then and there when a lot of Crockett guys were getting the awards, people figure oh, they're on their TV, they've got after in the magazines in his pocket. Didn't work that way. We also gave awards not physically with the plaques, but we also gave awards to the WWF. WWF, no, WWF guys that were voted on those years as well. Okay. Did it, do you know sense? any editors? Do you know any editors that took payola from promoters? Other than me, no. No, you, you, said, you said you didn't. One no, never. No, absolutely not. And I, I would tell you if I, if, I, if I knew. I really would. How did Cal Rudman become involved in wrestling? Who gave him a microphone? I don't, I don't. I don't know the answer to that. He used to. He was friends with Vince Jr. back in the rock and wrestling days. He was. A, well, he was DJ out of Cleveland or something like that. Maybe? I don't know. I don't know a lot about him. I don't know a lot about him. I do know that when I was growing, when I was a wrestling fan and got into the business, and everybody knows I loved the character Jerry Lewis, non wrestler played. That Cal Rudman would have been a great Jerry Lewis name. Sir, what's your name? Cal Rudman. <laughs> what about uh, Jack Reynolds? Where did he come from? Cleveland. I think he was uh, working at a uh, at a TV station there. Oh, he was and, Cleveland. Uh, Cal Rudman was Philly, I think. I said Cal Rudman was a DJ in – I think I meant Philly. Okay, so Jack, yeah, Jack Reynolds Ren was Jack Reynolds Cleveland. was a broadcaster for Pedro Martinez and Johnny Powers. And he was really good. It was really good. But Cal Rudman, remember that I lived in New York in the days you're talking about. So I never knew about Cal Rudman being a DJ. I never, people still ask me today about uh, Jerry Blavitt here in Philadelphia. I think I met him once, but I have no idea who he was here in Philadelphia until several years ago. Back in the day, what could I have done in wrestling, Bill? Where, where would you have used me? What would I have you would, You would have been a broadcaster. Not a manager. Not a manager. No, no, a broadcaster. You, you have, you have the look because I've seen you when we did ring roasts. I've seen you in tuxedos and stuff, and you have the look and the respectful look oh. of a of a broadcaster. How boring! So I'd have to ask, like, if if someone was going to win the title. No, you're not. Do you think you're, you're going to win the title tonight? I'd have to do that shit. Coming to the no. Capitol Center next Friday night. Get ready. No, no, that. that's not that's not Sean Oliver. No, the Sean not. Oliver I'm talking about is the Sean Oliver from the DVDs when you interview these great on on these uh, uh, great shoot interviews you do. But we could I love we couldn't break kayfabe yeah. back in the day, Bill. I know, but you were very natural with people there, and that's that's my style too. It's ben, just to be natural, like you're having a conversation with a friend. Benny Douglas, Bill, should Meltzer be taken seriously as a journalist, or is he just another cog in the wheel of professional wrestling? Of course he should. Dave is a Dave is a journalist first. Dave, before Dave uh, got into wrestling, he was working for newspapers out in California. Um, Dave, when people compare me to Dave Meltzer, it's not fair because I worked for a company that put out fan magazines. Dave is more of an inside, tell it like it is business guy. Gotcha. We do, we can't we, we can't be be compared. It's two different styles. Benny Douglas also asks you how big of a detriment, if any, has Vince McMahon been to wrestling in the last twenty years? Oh my god! You know what? Years and years ago, I would have said big detriment, but when I see the living that these wrestlers, or you want to call them sports entertainers, 
are making and the careers that they're having and how they're taking care of their lives and their families. And uh, it's great. It's not a detriment. It might have been a detriment back to the territories in those days, but he took this business and what, even though people didn't like, and I was one of them, the way he did it in many, many ways, but when the dust cleared, the people that are involved with him are all making better lives than they could have in the territorial days. Wrestling Eye, did you have anything to do with that? I did not. That was not one of the London publishing um, magazines. We did uh, Wrestler Inside, uh, PWI, of course, uh, Sports Review Wrestling, Ben Strong Wrestling, Wrestling Yearbook, Wrestling Annual, and probably a whole bunch more that I just don't remember. Was some of those like compilation editions where they took articles? Yes, yes. We did the best of in some of them as well. I would love to see a best of PWI, a bound book on that. Well, call Stu Sachs. He's easy to deal with. Listen, no, Bill. No, Stu is. So wait, wait. wait. No, he, he was all right. It was the cap of people. It was the Greeks that were the problem. The Gre- yeah. Aren't the Greeks always <laughs> no. the problem? Let me, let me back up. Stu is, you know, works for that company, but he does not make the rules. Kappa Publishing is a, is yes. a corporation. Um, so, you know, it... It, unfortunately, that's where you know, that's the they do business. They're a business organization. I've been saying this for ten years, even before WWE wanted to call you and put you on the t- on their network. You are the greatest living resource that that sport well, thank has, you. and, thank I, and you. I'm I'm thank glad you. that um, that the big guys realize that and include you in all these retrospectives well, do you, well, do that they you put know, together. Do you know how that happened? Yes, I put you on. I put you on all my shows, and they watch my shows for content. Well, yes, that was one. That was the second reason this came about. Right. What was the first? Correct. First reason was um, I was backstage at a show, a wrestling show in Philadelphia. And out of the dressing room comes Stu Sachs. And I said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, they're doing uh, a special on the like 50th anniversary of the WWE. And they wanted quotes for the network. And I said, well, well, that's great. That's wonderful. And, you know, Stu and I hung out for the night. And I'm driving home. And I said to myself, self, I said, I'm, I'm, I started covering their matches in person in 1970. And I was at every Madison Square Garden show until we were tossed. And I covered Bruno losing the title to Koloff and Pedro winning the title from Koloff and Stasiak against Bruno and all the greatest moments. Why didn't they call me? So um, I also found out at the same time, Eric Paulin, who was the, uh, the man in charge of video for Wrestle Reunion, that Sal Corrente put together, um, had done a lot of videos of me at Wrestle Reunion. And he got a position in the WWE Network and was wondering out loud to the people there, why haven't you had Bill Lapter on anything? And none of the people down there were wrestling people. They didn't know who I was. Hmm. So... At that point, I got a call from Eric, and then a few days later from Triple H. And, and I was, because I was devastated that I wasn't on that history of the WWE thing, that they didn't think to include me, because the guys who were putting that together didn't know me. And that, that, that really threw me for a loop. But isn't that ridiculous? Most, isn't that most, a ridiculous yeah, statement? It's yeah, a ridiculous but it was statement. The people putting together a 50-year retrospective about the biggest wrestling company in the world doesn't know who Bill Apter is. That's ridiculous. They didn't. Whoever was doing this didn't know this. So Eric Paulin really was the guy who put me on their radar. And that's in the foreword of my book, by the way. Um, And, yeah, yeah, it just uh, it threw me for, for a real loop because I was there when everything happened. I was there in person. And I do know to this day, Sean, all the interviews, the audio interviews that I did from the 70s on, I have every one of those on cassettes. And I run a lot of those on OneWrestlingVideo.com, the audio version. Yeah. I've got interviews with 
Buddy Rogers, Bruno, the Grand Wizard, Captain Lou Albano, everybody, you name it, I've got those things. Do you have outtakes where, like, somebody walks in the room and they're they're talking kayfabe by accident? No, no, I never did that. That's one of the reasons for my longevity is I knew when to listen, when to talk, when not to talk, when to turn my back and walk away, and when to press the record button. Excellent. These people made me part of the family. These people made me part of the business because – they knew uh, I would. They knew that I adjusted to the way they ran their businesses, and you have to do that. Bill, where can fans read you today? Well, onewrestling.com. That's the number one, not the word, onewrestling.com. But more than reading, I'm. I'm. You see yes. me doing this a lot. I do tons of video interviews. So onewrestlingvideo.com. Again, it's the number one, not the word. Onewrestlingvideo.com. So before I go, Sean, I I have to ask you a question. Yes. Is wrestling fixed? You know, I didn't know it was broken. Ah, see you at the matches. How was the delivery? Am I am I cast? Do I get the job? It's perfect. You cast. You got the job. Uh, Bill Apter was great. I say the great Bill Apter, but you know, I say the great everybody sometimes, but it's it's so true in his case. Bill was I mean, I, I can't overstate and for anybody under 40, you're not going to get it because of cable. Cable brought you all the wrestling in the world. And it, and it did eventually to to me and guys that are in their 40s. I mean, it was a glorious day. It was a time I had you know, I was a product of the New York market, so I was getting Vince and Vince Sr.'s product always. But then the TBS brought us Georgia, then it, uh, then Mid-Atlantic. We had, um, on the Spanish Channel, we were getting Watts. AWA started putting on... Um, uh, uh, ESPN started putting on AWA, and so there was a time... Oh, and World Class. MSG used to air World Class on Saturdays. So I was getting a, a bunch of territories uh, on television up here. That was that was kind of the golden age for me. But before that, it was it was the magazines. That's the only way you, you figured out what was going on. So, you know, kudos to Bill and all those guys that that kept that machine cranking, even if the rankings were a work, you know, even if the interviews were bullshit. Come on. Still, still did a great job. All right, some AMA here. What do you want to know? Uh, Dare Flo asks me, who's the biggest Seamus you've met in the movie business? Don't be a Seidel here. God, I got to answer this just because of his uh, terminology there. It's tremendous. Um, you know, the the rule with the movies is the rule with wrestling. Generally, the bigger they are, the cooler they are. Guys like Bruno, I mean, you had to know your business. I mean, they're not going to respect you if, you if you're a fucking mess. But guys like Bruno and Harley and those guys were the best. You know, they, they would they agree to the gig. They buy into the concept. And then they were great to work with. Um, movie business. Um, you know who was so difficult? Todd Salons. I did a film called Happiness, and um, he was just, he just, I, I just wanted a shower after working with him. He just creeped me out so much. Had he not found this, I'm fairly certain um, he'd, he'd be up on, on some kind of creepoid type charges. I just got a, just a shkivatz feeling from him. I can't explain it. And he was also so, <laughs> he was so particularly uncertain about what he wanted you'd give him 20 takes and he'd be like you know i know a little more this way and a little more that way and so like by the 10th take he's he's asked for something completely different than you started um he he uh he just he just wasn't certain what he wanted i guess he was one of those oddball voices at the time so his films got attention for being you know sexually depraved Pushing that envelope, you would. I have a feeling if he didn't have film uh, to do it in, he'd be pushing that envelope out in the world. One of the creepiest things he wasn't in the uh, he wasn't in the room for this take, but we were doing 
So I was doing voice work on it. I do looping and voice work on movies and TV shows. And we, we were doing a take in a high school hallway. And it was like the popular kids. And um, so we just had to add some background. And uh, he was out of the room, but his assistant director or associate producer, whoever the fuck it was, some young girl is there and she goes, uh, she goes, yeah, yeah. Talk about like maybe like the game coming up and, and you want to talk, someone talk about your girlfriend, like getting you to your girlfriend. Like he really likes to hear that stuff. You know, that it was just, I never forgot that it was years ago, but I was just like, oh, the, the fact that that, that, that was known. Yeah, I want to hear cool kids talk about their girlfriends. Um, so, I mean, he wasn't a dick. It was just, it was just unpleasant to work with him. There have been producers that have been difficult. Woman who worked, I did a, the movie World Trade Center, and we had a just a just such a twat came out, and she was uh, in in charge of um, the audio session there, and we had some firemen and police officers, first responders from the World Trade Center there for authenticity. But when it was their turn to get up and do a take, they were the absolute worst fucking performers. They just couldn't sound like a real cop and a real fireman. And there are the real cop and real firemen. So, I mean, here, you know, the actors are here and we're like, you know, we we could give you the take, the performance, but maybe, you know, the real guys here could give us the verbiage, like tell us how it would be said and then we'll get up and perform it like a real. But she was so dismissive of the performers and so enamored by the responders. I'm surprised her pants stayed on the entire time. So that was kind of shitty. Um, I, I mean, mostly great people. All the big people were were great. John Waters, great. M. Night Shyamalan, great. Robert Duvall, I tell that story on another uh, another episode of this. All right. Uh, Maria says, are there any, was there any interview that changed how you thought of the subject as a person, i.e. not in the in-ring persona, for the better? Also, what is the weirdest request a wrestler made in your negotiations booking the interview? As always, keep up the great work. Thank you, Maria. Uh, Changed how I thought of the person. Unless I know them in advance, I go in pretty open. But there's sometimes I think people are going to be so guarded and I don't know what it is at other like I hear things from other people or you hear other stories from workers and you're like, oh, God. Today, you know, I I go into most interviews knowing I have a chance of being punched in the face, which is fine. You know, for if it's entertaining and it sells DVDs, that's fine. Plus, the lawsuit would be tremendous. But um, like Bob Holly, that's a good example. I went in with my guard up, thinking that you know he was going to be. I spent the day with Bob, even went to the matches with him afterwards because he was working after the show. He was the nicest guy. Got to know him personally that time. He was, he was great. I had him back for the roast. He was just such a great guy. Now, I, you know, I was never in the ring with these people. You have to understand. So if there's workers listening going, well, yeah, well, you didn't take an elbow in the tongue. You're right. I didn't take an elbow in the tongue. But I can only speak uh, f- from wh- from the sphere from which I know. And, and that is having interviewed them or negotiated with them or spent time with them and, and didn't, you know, spend 14 minutes taking an elbow to the tongue. But the time I spent with Bob was great. Um, guys like that, I think guys that that I'm that I come in a little defensive. I thought Tully, I thought Tully had the propensity to be a little prickly. And here we're gonna you know break kayfabe and talk about this stuff. But he was he was fine. Spent had dinner with him beforehand. Usually when we can spend some time and break bread with them, it, you know they know we're not we're not out to make them look bad, and and they feel comfortable and safe with us. You know they they usually relax. Sometimes you got to go in cold. And there's nothing you can do. The likes of a Brutus Beefcake walks into the hotel room, looks around, sees cameras, lights at 8 o'clock in the morning, goes, oh, no, and turns and walks out. Those things happen. But eventually those guys soften, too. I'm trying to think of anybody else that, that uh, was thought to be difficult. Nobody offhand. Nobody offhand. But, uh, 
Tony A. Aragon would like to know, which guest was your biggest disappointment? Was there ever an interview you just wish never happened? Yeah. Um, the God, it's like my go-to. It's, it's bad. But the, the China you shoot. I think because I had such expectations. She was on reality television. She's been on Stern. She was so outspoken, so vocal about everything. She just signed a deal with Vivid Video. She'd done the surreal life. And her her life was an open book. She'd written her books and talked about her childhood and the difficulties there. She came in in a hood, in a hoodie, with a dog, and just kind of soft-souled the whole time. That was rough. I would have walked that one back if I could, if I could have. Wasn't happy with that. Um, I'd have to go to go through the list and see the. It, it it hasn't even it doesn't even have anything to do with how well they sold. There are a lot of titles that that I was a personal fan of that weren't the big. I think the Tony Atlas interviews tremendous. It wasn't a big hit, but I love that. It was so entertaining. Those are just personal favorites, though. Ones that I wish I never did. The China one I wish I never did. Um, <laughs> there were some series that I wished I'd never tried. It's because there was so much work, but they didn't go anywhere. I never did anything that I didn't enjoy. I wouldn't have greenlit it. I wouldn't have worked with Anthony so hard to make it come to life. That's how a production company works or a network or anything. You get behind something, man, and you pour yourself into it, and you do everything you can to make it work. And when it doesn't, it sucks. But you you wouldn't go with it unless unless you had it in your heart. The only thing that was a little that felt a little weird was Missy Heights pajama party. But that that was one episode we looked at it and went, well, listen for what it was, we succeeded, but no more, no more. And aren't you happy about that? Listen, guys, no more today. We are done. We're coming back. We got another one for you next week. This podcast has been a production of Sean Oliver Media. Copyright 2019. Music by the great Kevin McLeod. Licensed via a Creative Commons attribution license. We'll get you guys next time.